When I wear t-shirts, I can only wear v-necks because my neck is very fragile. I cannot wear a regular neck shirt. It hurts. <laughs> and I especially hate turtlenecks. Like wearing a turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All damn day. Ah, the great Mitch Hedberg. Elliot, the turtleneck, the phenomenon, the trending, not just of you, but Ron Burgundy as well. The tweets all night long. I don't know, and I don't care what he's saying on TV. I can't stop looking at Elliot Friedman's turtleneck on Hockey Night in Canada. Now, I'll give you a little glimpse into my life today. Here's how boring my life is, Elliot. Okay. You know what I spent a big chunk of my afternoon looking at today? What's that? Pictures of the history of Hockey Night in Canada commentators at the rink, in the studio, to try to find one example of anyone who's ever worn a turtleneck on Hockey Night in Canada before. And? I could not find one. I could not find one at all. First of all, how did you keep that such a secret? Peek behind the curtains here. I was told originally that there was no way, because you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, there was no way that you were going to be allowed to wear a turtleneck on hockey night. What happened? So, first of all, 20 years ago, earlier in my career, there's no way I would have done it. I took myself way too seriously. As I've gotten older and Deb Berman, who the MVP of Sportsnet in charge of our wardrobes, has gotten more of her claws into my life. She has said, I'd like to try some things. And, you know, being older, uh, less stiff, I think, you know, things happen to you in life. You learn what really is a pain and what isn't and what you should worry about and what you shouldn't and what's a big deal and what's not. I've learned to laugh at myself a lot more. And, you know, I just said this time, if we can do it, let's do it. And it started from Carolyn Cameron, who is the true turtleneck champion of Sportsnet. Mm -hmm. She wears them all the time. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, she challenged me to wear one on Hockey Night in Canada. And, you know, Deb told me about it and I was like, let's do it. And Deb wanted to try it. I, I think she's someone who really wants to push the fashion boundaries. Um, it's very clear that the show as a whole is going through a metamorphosis and we are heading towards a new generation of the way we do things at Hockey Night. And I think Deb would like to push it uh, fashion-wise. So I said I was willing to do it. And uh, there were people, and I'm not going to say who, but there were people who weren't sure about it for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, you want to do it properly. Number two, you don't want you know, people daring other people to wear something. And that becomes the uniform next week on hockey night in Canada. You know, for example, this week is the last week of Tim and Sid. If Sid says, Oh, I, I'm, I'm quitting on Friday. I'm going to breakfast TV. So I'm going to dare David Amber to dress up as Batman tomorrow night on hockey night in Canada. You don't want Dave taking the dare and showing up as Batman. So they said they had to have a process to this. The other person who had a lot to do with it was uh, Deidre Dion, who's our Senior Director of Talent Strategy and Business Relations, and we should add 2002 Olympic bronze medalist in freestyle aerial skiing, mm -hmm. who has been taking on a bigger and bigger role at Sportsnet, and they said, leave it to us. 
and they came up with a plan. They said, this is how we're going to do it. And we agreed that we weren't going to do it on Hockey Day in Canada. We just didn't think that was the right thing to do. That's a big day with a big message. So we decided not to do it. And we also agreed that we would put out the picture of myself and Carolyn, and they picked Austin Matthews, who wore it best, Mm -hmm. but we wouldn't talk about it in advance. We'd, you know, we'd just try to do it low key, unveil it, and just see what happened. And, you know, Jeff, at the end of the day, life's been tough. And I just want to make people laugh. I want people to have fun when they're watching and, and kind of laugh. And and they did, which we're really happy about. I think everybody loved it, whether they are fans of Turtlenecks, whether they love the style or not. I think everyone just had a good time with it on Saturday night. I know Twitter certainly had a good time with it on Saturday night. Did you think it would get the response that it did? I mean, right away, bam, it was the story on Saturday night hockey Twitter? You know, honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I thought some people would really hate it and I thought some people would like it. It was definitely more liked than I expected. You know, Sportsnet put out one tweet, should he go back with the beard or should he stay with the turtleneck? And and I saw some people tweeting, is there a third option? (laughs) (laughs) But for the most part, I thought people really laughed and kind of liked being involved in the joke. Um, So it got more reaction, definitely more reaction than I thought uh, it was going to get. But this is all part of a of another conversation that I've had. I think you and I have had this conversation off camera before. I watch a lot of clips of inside the NBA on, on TNT, Ernie Johnson with uh, primary geyser, Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal and Kenny Smith. And I watch the show that they do. And I have doubted that some of the things they do would be accepted by hockey viewers and just generally the the whole hockey, I don't even think establishment is the right word because I don't necessarily think it's establishment. I just maybe everybody in it. Like Barkley has a thing he does at the beginning of every year called who he play for, which is basically they put people on the screen and they say, who does he play for? And Barkley never gets it right. Like, he never has any idea. It's awesome. And I think if we ever did something like that where – they quizzed us on who does this guy play for in the NHL, and we didn't know. We'd get destroyed. Oh, 100%. Oh, we'd get crushed, Elliot. We'd get crushed. Like, how can these idiots not know who this, which team this guy plays for? Quick thought on that one. Yeah, go ahead. I think that that works because those guys are players, and there isn't the same expectation of players as there is non-players. I disagree with you. You don't think if we did that segment with Kevin Bieksa? No, I don't. I don't think hockey viewers have the same sense of humor. I don't. I really don't. Really, eh? And but not like yeah, I don't. Not like okay, where does Drew Doughty play? But if you said where does Mikey Anderson play? No, I don't. I really don't. Huh? And if people listening to this, they can tell me if they think I'm nuts. Like I have a really thick skin. You hear me say the words occupational hazard all the time. You know, you take heat when you're on TV, and that's fine. And you know what I you know what I think it is it's that I think the whole analytics versus non-analytics debate has added another level of edge to the whole discourse about the way hockey is covered and I don't believe it would be received very well even if it was you know Bexa or Rudy or Anthony or Jen Botterill or Cassie or any of our analysts I don't think it would be received well not at all 
Hmm. I think a lot about how to loosen up the broadcast a little bit. And I think we're making, I'm not the only one, Jeff. I think all of us talk about that. And I think we are taking strides, but I see the things that inside the NBA does, and I'm not convinced they would be as well-received in hockey. And so I always think, what can we do that is better received? And I was really hopeful seeing that last night. And not for me, I just think for all of us, I I think we just have to find uh, new ways to make people smile and laugh a little bit. Okay, so in your mind, when you saw yourself on the set, did you feel more like, I was thinking of this this afternoon, great turtleneck wearers. <laughs> Did you feel more like Will Ferrell or Steve McQueen? Well, when somebody sent me the Steve McQueen and said the new <laughs> bullet, <laughs> one of my favorite movies of all time, and just generally one of my favorite stories of all time is The Great Escape. Yep. Which was a very famous uh, Steve McQueen role. So I'm pretty content with my own existence. I don't want to live anyone else's. But Hmm. for a second there, thinking that anybody was comparing me to Steve McQueen was pretty cool. Best text or tweet you got about it. Oh, my God. There were so many. Are there any that come to mind? I would imagine there's a number of people in the industry. Okay. Starting with players, going to coaches, going to GMs, going to presidents, going to owners, hey, maybe even going to commissioners or executive directors. No, I I heard from him on the beard. I did not hear. He had other things he was worried about yesterday. At what level did the turtleneck resonate enough that it got a text? Player, coach, GM, president, where are we? All of the above. There were some absolutely great ones. Um, (laughs) You know, there's, there's one guy who said to me, that, like, you know, Don Waddell in Carolina is yes. pretty well known for wearing the yes. turtlenecks, right? And, you know, someone said to me, you know, I always thought that Don Waddell had the worst turtleneck look in the NHL. Well, now he's second. <laughs> <laughs> so after I saw this, and again, you didn't tell me about this at all. I don't think I really told anyone. I think the only people who knew, my wife knew. Yeah. Carolyn knew. I told Brian Spear, the Saturday night producer on Friday, we have a regular Friday call. I said, you do know I'm wearing a turtleneck, eh? And he didn't know that. I felt he should know. But it was very limited. The other on-air people didn't know until I walked in the room. A couple of weeks ago on uh, during one of our Wednesday night shows, I wore a turtleneck to work. And do you remember what we talked about afterwards? No, what did we say? You were going to hold up a turtleneck next to me and you're going to tweet out getting ready for Saturday night, question mark. This is when there was the, right. uh, started to chum the waters for the Saturday. But then all of a sudden that went away and it was not going to happen. And I sort of discarded, I said, oh, okay, well, that's, that's not going to happen. Would have been cool. Would have loved it. But ultimately it is, uh, it is not to be. So I see you on Saturday. I'm like, first of all, bravo. That's outstanding. I love it. It's great. Go to the Twitter machine, weigh in, you know, make sure you become one of the logs on the fire on this thing and let's keep it burning because it's fantastic. But two, I sent Deb Berman, who you referenced a second ago, our national stylist at Rogers, the excellent Deb Berman. I said, so if Elliot can wear a turtleneck, can I wear a penny collar shirt like Peaky Blinders on Wednesday? And what do you think the answer was? 
No. Not a chance. <laughs> See, that's why I'm curious. Where is this going to go? As much as you've opened the doors, I still can't wear a penny collar shirt <laughs> on Wednesday night hockey. That ain't going to happen. So you've opened the door, but... <laughs> Where's this all going to go? Like, I do think, Jeff, at some point in time, like, you know, watching the Bruins walk in in their so good. into Lake Tahoe in their 90s and the Vancouver Canucks were losing. So they had the one night where they didn't uh, wear the dress clothes and then they beat Calgary uh, last Saturday. I think we should have a conversation. You know, Ron likes to dress a certain way. So let Ron dress that way. My belief is I have no style, so I am, you know, I'm at the mercy of Deb. What, what do you want me to wear? That's the way I should wear? Fine, I'll, I'll put it on. But I do think we should be having a conversation about how people want to dress and how can we work it so that you can look professional, but maybe stylish and different. Like to me, if you don't want to wear a tie, I don't think you should have to wear a tie, but that doesn't mean you should look like a slob. How can we make you look good? And also, you know, with all the women on our broadcast now, it's not the same for every one of them. They all have different styles too, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we do this in a way where everybody looks professional, everybody looks good? I, I think we should be taking a step out there to say there's different ways to dress here. And, you know, hopefully this was a small step towards it. And there you have it. Fresh off the runways of Hockey Night in Canada, welcome to 31 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the GMC Sierra AT4. Meanwhile, Lucic went down in a heap. McDavid broke free out from behind the net. Rich shot score. There's the hat trick. His second this year. McDavid's got a dozen. And Edmonton is running Calgary right out of the building. Welcome to the very stylish 31 Thoughts podcast. Jeff Merrick along with the uh, the fashion plate, Elliot Friedman. Uh, coming up on the program, by the way, you will hear from Kerry Kaplan. Really interesting guy. Uh, co-owner general manager of the uh, Brampton Beast of the ECHL, who last week announced they would be ceasing operations. So what goes into that decision? Uh, how do you arrive at that? And what do you actually do uh, when you fold the franchise? Kerry Kaplan uh, will discuss later on. on old the- high school buddy of mine. An old high school buddy of yours, uh, former, as we find out in the interview, baseball teammate uh, of yours back in the day, Elliot. What position did you play in baseball? I never asked him that question. I primarily played outfield. Okay, very good. I was too lazy to bend down for grounders. <laughs> I didn't like grounders. Where did you bat in the lineup, sir? Uh, either at the top or the bottom. I wasn't a big power hitter. Okay. I am not afraid to admit this. I was the epitome of mediocrity. The one thing I had is I had a very good arm. I could throw out people on the base paths, 
But other than that, I was the epitome of mediocrity. Well, you know what I always say about that, Elliot? A mediocre man is always at his best. And someone uh, who right now is at his best is Austin Matthews, 18 goals in 18 games as we record this. Uh, you know who else is at his best right now after a five-point night against Calgary, 37 points overall in the NHL is Connor McDavid. Uh, Mitch Marner and Leon Dreisaitl are laying waste to the NHL. And the hue and cry, Elliot, true or false, amongst everybody else in the other three divisions in the NHL is, wow, the defense in the Canadian division must stink. <laughs> How do you address that? I think this is actually great for the game that the hatred of the Canadian division is growing. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for this. Look at all the major international events, right? Yep. All the rest of the countries, they hate us. They don't want Canada to win. I mean, there's some obviously fierce rivalries, Sweden, Finland, but if your most hated opponent isn't Canada, they're your second most hated opponent. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember 2002 Olympics, Canada beats us in the gold medal game. Aaron Miller walking out of the arena after Canada won the gold and just asking him about, you know, losing to Canada. And he goes, that makes it worse. I think everybody thinks about that. And the Canadian division. Now the numbers are so high, you know, Matthew's going into Saturday night was averaging 0.94 goals per game, that would be the 11th highest of all time if it lasted. And, you know, McDavid's on pace for, what, 105 points in 56 games? Yep. I, and so I'm starting to see, uh, you know, the Canadian division doesn't play defense. That's why all these players are having such great numbers. I think that's so good. In this year where, you know, everything is so hard and you're worried about COVID. If everybody hates the Canadian division because they don't like the numbers, I think that's great for the sport. I think it is excellent. The hate for Canada has to come back. There's no question about that. It will drive interest in the sport. How many times have we talked about this? When it comes to sports, sports is essentially emotional. Now you measure it using your head. We all understand that. But the tug is not mental, it's emotional, by and large. Uh, I don't want to say overwhelmingly, but generally, the tug to sports is from your heart, not your brain. And how many times have we talked about this? If you're going to have love, you have to have hate too. You know, and one of the great things about sports is finding something not just to love about it, but something to hate about it. And when's the last time? We saw anything other than perhaps pity from other organizations towards Canada. Not so much internationally, because you're right, that is the measuring stick. In the great Victor Hedman interview that we did, which will never be aired for various reasons, and we asked him the question, you know, which country do you like beating more than any other? He said right away, as much as we expected Finland, he said Canada right away. So... Mm -hmm. this is an emotion that's legitimate in sports. I think is valuable in sports. I think should be encouraged in sports, but when's the last time anyone in the NHL, other fan bases really got mad at Canada? I guess maybe listen, there was a lot of venom from the Boston Bruins and their fan base towards the Vancouver Canucks in 2011, but I can't think of the last time that Canada was greeted with this type of scorn on a team-to-team -team basis in the NHL. Can you? 
Oh, yeah. I, I think Toronto gets it all the time. But not like this, Elliot. When some of those series with the Devils. No, but the point about this is, this is the Toronto Maple Leafs that are on top. This is Austin Matthews that, you know, Hart Trophy, Rocket Richard, all of that conversation. Like, it's that Yankees hatred. It's not the, oh, look at these walking ATM machines going into Scotiabank Arena, turning themselves upside down and, you know, having the organization shake every nickel out of their jeans, and then they scurry back and do it two, day, two, more, two days later. This type of hatred is they're on top, and Austin Matthews has 18 goals. We have to find a new way to hate them now. Yeah, that's fair. You know, I'll tell you, there's something else at play here. So... Someone pointed out to me the other day that they think the voting is going to be unfair this year for awards. To be honest with you, Elliot, I've talked with people about this before. The voting this year is going to be really hard. Yeah. The voting this year is going to be really tough. There's 24 U.S. markets, chapters. There's seven Canadian chapters. There's an international chapter. The international chapter is slightly more Canadian than anyone else. But in the Canadian chapters have a lot more people than anyone else, but not everybody gets a vote. It's pretty interesting. Everyone's going to be watching all their teams, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for example, are you only going to vote for people in your division? Like, Like, I'll tell you this. If Austin Matthews scores 50... And Toronto wins the Canadian division. Like, I don't care what team he plays for. He's going to win the Hart Trophy. Mm-hmm. And that would be the case anywhere, I think. Somebody scores 50 goals this year and their team's good. How are they not winning the Hart Trophy? I don't know. How many points is Connor McDavid going to put up? Again, I know it's not all his fault, but I mentioned the team here because, look, Toronto was opened up. We're taping this on Sunday night while Montreal is playing. So understand that Montreal is playing while we're saying this. Toronto's got a six-point lead in the north, okay? With a game in hand. With a game in hand. Now, Edmonton's coming to Toronto next week for three games. If Edmonton catches them and beats them, that's fine. But I'm just saying, if Matthew scores 50 and Toronto wins the North, how's he not winning the heart? Now, if McDavid gets 100 points and Edmonton wins the North, then he's winning the heart. But people are saying, you know, hey, the voting's not going to be fair. If these guys go on record paces, I don't care if there's no defense being played. (laughs) Uh, I agree with you. I want to get to a couple of other issues here because I want to get to Kerry Kaplan. Uh, And there's a few things that we need to get to. One... Uh, as we record this, tonight is uh, game two uh, of the Lake Tahoe experience. We all saw what happened on Saturday uh, with the ring conditions and the lengthy intermission. And then we came back and Nathan McKinnon put on a show, Kale McCarr put on a show, etc. Outside of the unfortunate circumstance with the ice itself. And by the way, for everybody that took cheap shots um, about it and how could the league not have foreseen this and how does the sun sneak up on you i don't recall seeing one person raising this as a concern before at all i didn't see anybody outside of what happened with the ice itself 
the visuals, and I know they want to do this with fans. I get it because they're so that's such a premium game. I thought it was gorgeous. Like just from an aesthetic point of view, Elliot. Like was that not beautiful? From everything, from the scenery, uh, from the mountains to the shadows that were very pronounced. And at times, did it seem to you as if you could kind of hide the puck as you were skating with it, like within the shadow itself? It was a really, really weird phenomenon to watch. But what did you take away from the, the weekend in Lake Tahoe? One of the biggest questions they had was what to do. The Philly-Boston game, from which started at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific on Sunday, I think that one had been moved well before it got announced. Like, that's what I heard. It, it had been moved considerably mm-hmm. sooner than they announced it, which is kind of weird. I, I kind of wondered why they would wait that long when I heard it. The big question they had was, do they try Vegas, Colorado? And in the morning, I heard first thing in the morning, when people woke up, it was misty. It was kind of dreary. And I think they really felt that that was going to give them a chance to try it. They thought they'd have enough cloud cover to do it. Also, if they move the game, they lost the national U.S. TV window, which is a consideration. And what you said was a thing. They wanted that view to get shown. It was so spectacular. They wanted it to get shown. So they talked about it with the league, the teams, the players. And they said they would give it a shot. Now, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly they weren't going to do it. And I think we're very fortunate that no one got hurt. I think the players deserve a lot of credit. And the guy I would single out would be Gabriel Landeskog because he got interviewed by NBC as they announced the postponement. And, you know, at that time, everybody's ripping the league. He could have easily gone on TV and, and ripped it too. And he talked it up. He was very positive about it. And I think that's most players. Like I asked like a couple people around, what, what were the players' reactions to all this? And, you know, Boston, Philly, they had to fly all the way across the country and wait an extra day. Yep. And the one thing I get told is if you go to every outdoor game, the players can be very mixed. Like the, the first one, the Edmonton-Montreal one was the one we covered. And, you know, we've talked about how the Oilers and Canadians players made a deal that that game was too important not to play, so they were going to play it, and it was going to be a no-hitter. Hang on, hang on. For those that may not know the story, by no-hitter, the agreement was each team agreed... Don't hit anyone. ...not to hit each other. (laughs) It's too cold, there'll be no body contact. Sorry, go ahead. The ice was... They were worried about the ice. So, you know, once again, the players, I think, were their reactions mixed? Yes, I think they were. But they understood the importance of it to the league, and they made it work. Um, I thought the game on Saturday night was, once it resumed, was really good. And I, I'm watching the other game as we do the podcast. It's pretty bright in some places, but again, it looks spectacular. Um, you know, the players deserve a lot of credit. They know a lot is on the line in these situations, and they do it. I will say this you know, the commissioner had some comments about having fans at games, and that's a big part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons that I think the league wanted to go forward with it yesterday was they get criticized for not trying anything, right? And this is a league that has been overly conservative. And they said, you know what? Screw it. We're trying it. And it didn't work in the moment. It worked later. It looks like it's working now. 
Sunday night as we taped this, but it didn't work in the moment. I hope that doesn't scare them back into being afraid. This is a league that because of where we are, the times we're in, they have to be more willing to take chances than they've been in the past. And I hope this does not change that. I don't think they want games without fans anymore, which is why I wonder, can you do another game like this with five or 10,000 people there? Mm. I don't think they want the fanless experience. That's the commissioner said it on Sunday night, and that's what I was hearing throughout the weekend. I just love the visual fans or not like i i just love the uh the field of dreams idea of a game you know if you flood it they will come kind of idea if you have a minimum a minimal amount of fans just to place it in non-traditional places you know with the marketing slogan i don't know hockey is everywhere you know so i remember being in a, a restaurant and were you at the table with us brenda irving jim van horn it was the first night in uh in beijing and Brenda found a restaurant in downtown Beijing, and I remember I walked by the wine cellar. I don't think so. When, I remember walking by the wine cellar, and there was a picture of Steve Eiserman. And I remember thinking about like I've always said this to myself, hockey is everywhere, hockey is everywhere. Like, everywhere you look, there's hockey. And I remember, like, here I am in Beijing, and of all people, right beside the wine cellar, there's a picture of Steve Eiserman with the Detroit Red Wings with no context whatsoever. The picture is just there. It's a pretty nice place, too. Maybe that's your moniker. Hockey is everywhere. And you have these essentially pop-up rinks and these pop-up events that happen all over the place. I love that idea. I understand the economic reality of everything more so now than ever that the league is going through. I just loved like everything visually about the Lake Tahoe experience. I really dug it. And my idea is you do it with your partners, right? Yeah. Five to 10,000 people. Some people pay, no question about it. Some people will pay for the experience, but have a contest where one or a set of fans in every market gets to write something as to why or submit something as to why they deserve to represent every one of the NHL markets at this game. Mm -hmm. Me and a friend, me and another person. This is why we get to go do it through your sponsors, do it through the NHL website, figure it out. It's not that hard. And you, you give out 64 tickets, 32 times two of why a fan from this market gets to represent their market at this game. Love it. Why do you deserve it? Love it. Just love it. A couple of things. Yeah. Sidney Crosby, a thousand games. And one of the visuals we'll take away from that is warm up when everyone got down to tie their skates. That was awesome. Even he was laughing. He was howling. It was great. The video tributes were wonderful. All of it. I've often wondered what Crosby does when his career is done. Like I have a hard time believing that Sidney Crosby, when his career, and I'm not trying to wrap up his career by any stretch. I've always wondered what he does when hockey on the ice in the NHL is over for him. Because I really don't believe that he's going to be one of those guys that, well, hockey's done. It's time for something different now. He seems like one of those bread in the bone, baked in the pie kind of guys for hockey. Okay, well, let me ask you this question first. Sure. His contract is up at the end of the 2024-2025 season. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, he is going to be approaching 38 because his birthday's in August. Do you think he retires then? 
I don't know whether Crosby is one of those players that will only play if he feels he's a peak performer or if he's, and I find value in both, but I really like the Peter Forsberg, you have to drag me off the ice example. I don't think it ruins careers. I don't think it, uh, oh, you'd tarnish the, the, uh, the reputation of the player. I don't know whether he want, what type of player he wants to be on the ice. You know, does he want to be, you know, I just mentioned Steve Eisman a couple of seconds ago. Like Eisman accepted a secondary role late in his career. Would Crosby do that? I don't know. Will he only play if he is at or near his best? I don't know. But I can see at that point him just going on evergreen deals. Just one year at a time. One year at a time. Do you see him being a manager? I don't know if he would want to be a manager. And again, I don't know Sidney Crosby that well personally. You know, I could see him like running the Penn State hockey program. I was going to say, I, I could see him running Team Canada. I could see that too. But I, I just don't know. Like, what, what could you see Crosby doing? Here we are, a thousand no games. Idea. It's remarkable. First Pittsburgh Penguin ever, a thousand games with that franchise. I don't know that he's thought about it. What is it that, that, that Kelly Rudy always talks about? Kelly has mentioned this before, and it's always resonated with me. The minute you think about retirement, part of you retires. Marv Levy always said that. When you think you're retiring, you're retired. I don't know that he's thought about it. But again, I don't know Crosby, but I've always wondered, what would he want to do next? Because pretty much anything he would want to do, the door's open for him to do in hockey. And then one of the questions becomes, who does he kick off the Mount Rushmore? That's for another that's for that's for another podcast. Anthony but. put him in the top three. Anthony reads Twitter too much. <laughs> hey man, he's a gift master. Come on, he lives there. Yeah. Another player hitting a thousand games is Travis Zajac. And I know it's not going to get the headlines that Sidney Crosby gets, but this is going to sound so incredibly stupid, but you're used to me, Elliot. I look at Travis Zajac as a hockey player. I know that sounds dumb, but hear me out. You know, there are some guys that aren't going to be the best on their team, aren't going to be the worst on their team, but their coach can use them in every situation and feels really safe putting them on the ice. Those guys I call hockey players. And I think it's a real big compliment. Like Travis Zajac made it to a thousand games. I know he was a high. I think he's a really good hockey player. And I mean that as a really strong compliment. He can do so much for a team. He's not going to score 50 goals, but he's also not going to not going to embarrass your team. Crosby gets 1000 games. Awesome. One of the greatest of all time. Travis Ajak gets 1000 games. I said there's a really good hockey player. You ever thought on Travis Ajak? Well, I'm really happy for him because he goes on the COVID list and he spent a lot of time on it with two games to go at 998 and you know one of the things i'm kind of learning here jeff is that whatever strain was picked up between buffalo and new jersey it caused a lot of symptoms i can't compare all situations everyone's different but generally from what i understand here and this has kind of been backed up to me the strain that was picked up by the sabers and therefore the devils was a lot more challenging than most, if not all, of the other situations the NHL teams have gone through. And, you know, Philadelphia is playing this with several players on the COVID list. I don't know their full situation. But now we know Rasmus Ristolainen 
described his struggles to a Finnish reporter, Sammy Hoffren, and they were very serious. Uh, we know that Jake McCabe, who's now injured and we're awaiting a full understanding of what his injury is, you know, he had a real battle. And I watched some of the Devils Zoom calls when they first came back to practice, and you could tell the players were talking about what Zajac had to go through, and they really care about him. And they talked about how tough it was to see some of the things that he battled. So, you know, for him to come back and get a 1,000, I'm happy for him. I'm happy for him that he came back and overcame it. And uh, in those comments by his teammates, I saw a lot of respect. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy who last year, the Islanders wanted him for the deadline, right? And he vetoed a deal. Uh, He's a devil. I mean, we'll see what his future is going to be. But um, he's a pretty respected guy. A lot of people in the league have really good things to say about Zajac. Congratulations uh, to both those players, Travis Zajac, Sidney Crosby, on a 1,000 games. Uh, Don't look now, but the Los Angeles Kings have won four games in a row, a pair against Arizona, Minnesota, and San Jose. Uh, They got two big games coming up this week early against the St. Louis Blues. That's going to be a tough test. Do you have a thought on what's happening in L.A.? Like We had a, a wonderful conversation with Blake Bolden last week, and we talked about, obviously, her team, the Los Angeles Kings, and here they are on a four-game winning streak. Drew Doughty all of a sudden has 15 points. Anse Kopitar has been real good all season long. Do you have a thought or two on the on the Kings? Well, you mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about the Kings, so I did actual research. I talked to Rob Blake today. <laughs> and, uh, you know, first of all, if you look at them on points percentage, they're fifth in the West Division. Mm-hmm. It's Vegas 1, Colorado 2, St. Louis 3, and they're a line ahead. They're all 6'11 or better. Then there's Minnesota at 571 and the Kings at 531. And that puts them in the race. And we all kind of figured it would be Blues, Knights, Avalanche, and kind of, okay, who finishes fifth? You know, the thing about the Kings is, one of the things that Blake said was, the best players, the Dowdies, the Kopitars, the Browns, they, you know, they told them and they recognized that the days of trading away good players or letting good players go was over. They hit their rock bottom last year and now it's time to start turning around. And he said that the other thing, and he thinks this particularly affected Dowdy, is that they saw some of the prospects were really good players. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, we've got some real talent here. And he said Dowdy in, in particularly has been motivated by the Olympics next year. And he's admitted it. Oh, yeah. He's talked about, uh, you know, how he's been left off teams. Blake does think that's a big deal for Dowdy. So, you know, here we are. And, you know, th- they do have really good young players. And one thing I asked Blake about was, you know, all those guys who are down in Ontario – do you have a plan for them to play? And and he said, no, not in, we're not going to be rushing them. He said, a lot of the guys that are making uh, making inroads at the NHL level are guys who played in the AHL for a year. And he thinks that's important. And I asked him, if you're in the race, will you add? And he said, no, that's not our plan. We want to make sure that these young players, if these games matter, they get as much possible time in them as they can, and they're not pushed down by somebody else who comes in. So, you know, that's kind of what I, what I think the Kings are thinking is they hit rock bottom last year, and now it's time to start 
taking these good young players, give them their experience, and see where we go. It's been a nice story. And Quentin Byfield on the horizon amongst a lot of other prospects. We've talked about this before. They're, they're amongst the tops uh, when it comes to, uh, to prospects in their pipeline. Something you mentioned on headlines this week, Elliot, the Nashville Predators, and we talked it on the, about, about it on the podcast last week, uh, open for business, but you got down to some names and some untouchables, and you cited three, Yossi Ellis and Pekka Rene, the netminder. Everybody else, they will listen. Well, Yossi has a no-move clause. He's the heart of the team. Sure. Ellis does not have that protection, but they consider him incredibly valuable. Rene has partial no trade protection. I think it's also, this could be it for him. And I think they want him to retire as a predator. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where they are. I was surprised because the reason I found out about it was because there was a rumbling going around that someone had asked them about Forsberg. And while they said it would be a high price, it was not impossible. And so I started checking around how many untouchables were there. And, you know, I was like, I'm hearing three and it was Dante Fabro. And, you know, I was told not necessarily like, again, I think it's a high price, yeah. but they'll consider it. So they're willing to consider some big, big things. I think they realize that that window's closed and it's time to rebuild towards opening a new one. They have a GM that's not shy. No, he's not afraid. Uh, before we hit a break and come back with uh, our guest, Kerry Kaplan, uh, do you have a thought on what's happening with the Calgary Flames right now? Saturday was tough for them. We always put such a focus on the Battle of Alberta. Calgary Flames, Edmonton Oilers. This one was all Edmonton, uh, despite you know Calgary out shooting the Oilers 7-1 to one at the end of all of it. It's tough sledding right now in Calgary. Those players look really frustrated. I think Kachuk was really frustrated by what happened. Like that whole puck flipping thing led to a meeting that I just think sent them sideways. Hmm. You know, I think Kachuk feels that they don't want him to, or some of the players didn't want him to create a something every game. And I think he's confused by that. I think, you know, he understands only how to play the game a certain way. And I think he's questioning it now. You know, we just talked about Nashville, like the core got to a point where it was time to change it. I think they're at that point in Calgary. Markstrom charged down the ice twice. I think that was all about, we're not playing hard enough. We're not playing hard enough. We got to play harder. Mm -hmm. I just think that that group, they're not playing for each other. And I do think Brad Tree Living's been making a lot of calls on guys, not just Sam Bennett. And um, I think they're going to look at it and say it's time we got to change up our group. It's hard to do right now because you can't bring guys over the border. But I think they will aggressively try to change their mix, not just for now, but in the future. I, I think you're probably at the point where you're looking at this group and saying, you know what, this group had its run and now we're going to do some other things. Big week coming up for the uh, for the Calgary Flames. I don't know what week sort of determines the course of action, uh, but more losses, and we'll see what decisions get made. We'll hit a break. Thank you for uh, for coming for the turtleneck talk and staying for the hockey chats. Uh, you'll hear from the uh, the general manager and co-owner of the Brampton Beast, uh, who last week ceased operations. Kerry Kaplan joins us on Thirty One Thoughts, the podcast, in a moment.
Elliot, we are pleased to be joined by the president and general manager of the Brampton Beast, also the president and co-owner of uh, Cosmo Sports and Entertainment. Uh, he is Kerry Kaplan, and he joins us now. Kerry, thanks so much for stopping by today. How are you? Yeah, good. How are you? My pleasure, guys. Pleasure is all ours. Thanks for coming on. And listen, in a, a very challenging time for anyone, for the purposes of this podcast, specifically involved in hockey, everybody at every single level has taken a hit. We all know that. And the Brampton Beast of the uh, ECHL, of which, as we mentioned, you are president, GM, uh, and minority owner as well, uh, have now ceased operations. Before we get into the, the specifics of, uh, of what happened and, and why it happened, how has your life been the last little while while you, you know, wrestle with a decision like this? Yeah, it's a great question. I appreciate it. It's very hard. The decision creeped up upon us, and it was probably... A week before where myself and uh, and the other owners knew it was going to happen. And that was, you know, it was a long family day because you know that um, a lot of people are going to be impacted. So that was, uh, that was hard. And then, you know, the last few days, of, there's a lot of emotions once you actually make the announcement. So it, there's sadness, uh, but we also realize, which is, is a pleasant surprise, is how many people we were able to touch in those seven years. Kerry, I'm going to explain yours and my connection in a couple of minutes, but first take us through the last couple of weeks and months as the ECHL came back. Some teams decided they were going to play, right. some teams didn't. And then when you realized that this was the course of action you were going to have to take. Well, I think the big thing is people don't realize, you know, the pandemic's 11 months, but it affected three seasons for us. And I think that's, you know, as does it a lot of other teams. So, which, you know, sounds illogical, but in March of last year, which we had a lot of momentum, our you know our team was excellent. We were fifth in the conference. We had in essence clinched the playoffs. Um, our crowds were on the upswing, and then COVID hit, and that shut down our playoff run and our season and any revenues associated with that. As you say, the second year, which is this year, fourteen of the twenty-six teams in the ECHL elected to play, but both of those in Canada, we had no option with the borders, so. Uh, November, we shut down the current season. So that's two years. And then I think what we realized recently is next season, uh, which I think for many may be hard to hear, but next season is compromised. Normally this time of year, you sell a lot of season tickets, you, you renew your season tickets, you make group sales, you do a lot of sponsorship. There's so much nervousness out there that we realized that for the upcoming season, let alone all the costs associated with testing or however that looks, but that the revenues would be greatly depleted. So it was three seasons. You're, you're losing revenues in three distinct hockey seasons. And as a, as a business, it's not sustainable. So that, you know, we came to that realization in probably since Christmas that it was a third season that may be affected. And uh, for us, that was, that was just too much. So the announcements made just recently in this in the second week of February, you said that you kind of had an idea at Christmas. What happens in the six weeks or so between those two dates as you're trying to figure out, is there a way to save this? You know, you try and find a way. You know, we, we had other scenarios with the Beast in seven years where uh, we brought some new ownership on board and we did some other unique things to bolster the organization. So you, you try to find a way, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, one, one, one door, two door, three doors are closed. You try and see if there's a window or, you know, you can throw a 
fire extinguisher through the door, some way to find an option that can get you there. And part of it was, you know, thinking, well, even in the new year, you know, you think, okay, you know, the, obviously there was the election in the, in the U.S. and the vaccines were announced in November. So there's a bit of a, a last thought that maybe January, February, people will be inclined to think about next year and get excited and they want to get back to, uh, to hockey. But again, there's too much trepidation. I mean, COVID is still so overwhelming. Um, and we went right up to, I can tell you, the, the announcement was Wednesday. Our owner's vote was Tuesday morning. You know, we had till Wednesday at the league to declare if we're going to do this. And right up until Tuesday, uh, we hadn't, as a group, taken that final decision. So we, you know, you felt like exhausted every possible avenue to see if we could get there. How would you vote? Well, I don't want to disclose the vote. I would just say for all four of the people, we all emotionally, if it was emotion, I think all four of us for different reasons would have voted yes. You know, it was that balance between heart and heart and head. Yeah. It was just painstaking to get to that point. You know, people look at it and say, well, the Brampton Beast and, you know, there's, you know, 2,500 or 3,000 people game. I mean, 680,000 people came to our games in seven years. I mean, that, it's a lot. That's just multiplying out 2,700 times 254 games that we played. So you, you end up affecting so many people and charities and community groups and schools that they can't afford to, but people don't realize, and this is the same in people any- People in the community have jobs there. Like, I get it. But people don't realize it's the same in, in small cities. You know, you, people can't afford to go to Leafs games and Raptors games. and But there's a lot of people that can take their kids three or four times a year to a Brampton Beast game. And that's a memory that uh, that eight-year-old is going to have uh, when they're 38. So it, yeah, it's really impactful on the community. Did you look at all, Carrie, at, at relocation? Was that ever a conversation? Not for us. I mean, we, and I know that happens and you, you know, from an ECHL perspective, we're, we're Brampton. Um, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in the Toronto area. And so, uh, and all our owners have a distinct connection to the city. I mean, our, you know, we have one gentleman in Kingston, we have another in Toronto, and then we have a, an interesting, you know, the first South Asian owner ever, uh, that I know of in hockey joined our group, but he's, Got a home in uh, Peel region, and he did a huge cricket tournament in Brampton. So the answer there is, Jeff, we're all connected to the territory. For us to mm-hmm. sell to a group in in Pennsylvania wasn't there was no appeal to it. It was sort of Brampton or broke for us. How often would you have been contacted, whether it was when everything uh, was finalized last week or even previous to that, the couple of different announcements, uh, the ECHL the limited amount of teams coming back, um, Brampton not being one of them. I'm curious how many players would have contacted you directly? Like how hands-on are you? How how cell phone-on are you with, with players from the ECHL? Are you saying in, in which instance? Well, I'll give you an example. So so my kids work with Aaron Barisha. Yep. He's one of their trainers. And I know there was some plans there for uh, for Aaron. And then yep. when it was announced that the Beast weren't going to be one of the teams coming back, it was scramble time. And he ended up in, in Slovakia. But I, I'm curious, you know, how many players would call you directly? I'm, I'm just curious about the nature of the relationship between, you know, you and the players and, and how those conversations went. Well, I mean, it's an interesting look at Elliot and I've known Elliot uh, since, you know, we, we in essence went to school together. And 
you know, it's a dream to be a general manager of a hockey team. I've been on the business side of hockey for many years, business side of sports, but in this context, I was general manager. At the ECHL level, your hockey ops staff is extremely small. It's your head coach and me mm -hmm. and your assistant coach. So, and it's also realizing that the players are guys making $900 a week plus housing, you know, so they, if they're not playing hockey, they either have to, as you say, go to Slovakia or Poland or Switzerland or Norway or find another job. So the answer is there that, you know, Spiros Anastas is our head coach. He's the primary point of contact with all of the guys. But I talked to a number of players one-on-one. -on -one, and then we did, you know, in our Zoom world here, we've had some conversations with guys as developments happen. Uh, but to your point, it's, you know, people say, well, isn't it premature? We're closing in February. Part of that is to let the players and staff and coaches make their plans for next season. You know, we, we didn't want to run this till June or July, then make the same decision, and then players, we'd compromise guys' uh, situation. In those conversations, would you have been comfortable or did you sort of direct them to other possibilities? Hey, I hear there's a spot opening up on this team. Hey, this team may need two left shot defensemen. I can make a call for you. Yeah, we, we did. Well, the ECHL did a great thing. I mean, the ECHL was very proactive in this and, you know, it, it's an unusual thing. 14 teams played and 12 didn't. Mm -hmm. What the, the league's done, which is I think very smart, is that all the players from last year are protected by the teams that took a year off. So if we would have played, the Brampton Beast would have got our players back for October, which allowed us to say, absolutely, if you want to play for Tulsa in this current season, we'd encourage guys to do that. We wanted them to stay active and play. And I'd say a good chunk of our, probably half of our team ended up playing either for another ECHL team or went to Europe Mm -hmm. uh, at least to do that. So yeah, we we were we really encouraged guys to to find other options, knowing that we'd be getting them back in Brampton if we came back. So that is just so we're all on the same page, so our, our listeners understand. So that would be essentially you loaning them to other teams, but still keeping the rights. We would have the rights. You have some exposure if you know they go to Europe and they're happy. We could have lost some guys there for sure. But yeah, we were uh, cooperative with guys playing wherever they were able to play. Ottawa was your affiliate team for the NHL. Yes. How many conversations with them were there about what you were thinking and whether or not they could help? I mean, Ottawa didn't play, uh, you know, obviously last, you know, in the playoff situation last year. So they were one of the teams that were, was off. I mean, we, we had a few conversations, so both of us kept each other in the loop. But because everybody was inactive for this period of time, there really wasn't much they could do or we could do to uh, remedy the situation. You got to remember too, you know, unlike other leagues, we we're in a 26 team league with 24 American teams. Yes. Which is more unique. It's not the AHL doesn't, you know, can do a little division. I mean, unless we were going to play Newfoundland 72 times. Uh, and by the way, you can't get into Newfoundland through COVID, but so we had even less likelihood to be able to get back. So, you know, Ottawa, I would say, is a great partner. I mean, they development for them is king, and that, that's what you want in an ECHL team. You want, you want an NHL team that develops from within. So, I mean, they were an excellent partner, but there really wasn't anything for them to do because we just we, we were the holdup. We weren't playing. 
So, Jeff, I should explain this. So, Carrie, as mentioned, we we know each other for a long time. We went to high school together at York Mills Collegiate in uh, Toronto, and we also used to play uh, when the weather was good at Banbury Park, which is not far from York Mills and Leslie. We'd play uh, baseball against each other uh, or sometimes with each other every single day. So, there's a long history. Mm-hmm. You know, Carrie and I kind of lost connection for a while, and then we gained it again. Carrie was working for the uh, Hamilton. Were you? Was it the Hamilton Bulldogs or Oilers? I couldn't remember if it was Bulldogs or. It was the Bulldogs. The first uh, first year, six years of the Bulldogs back was there in the nineties. Okay, so he works in the marketing department for them. And my favorite story about you, Carrie, and you know where I'm going. You're going to tell everybody is OT night. Yeah, so is OT night. Now explain to Jeff and Amal in the audience what you tried to do on OT night and why you were told you weren't allowed to do it. Oleg Tevrodovsky was a. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> <There's> the- <laughs> Have you heard that? When was the last time you heard that? Oleg Tevrodovsky. Yeah. Okay. Oleg Tevrodovsky. Right. So right. So AHL Bulldogs. We had Oleg Tevrodovsky was coming down to Hamilton to play in a Elliot's got a great memory. No, no, you guys signed him. He was unsigned. He, he was unsigned. That's right. He was unsigned. We signed him in Hamilton. Right. That was the we signed him in Hamilton. He ended up playing in Edmonton, I think. If you get but anyways, his initials. So the key thing there was Oleg Tevrodovsky, which is OT. Mm-hmm. So we thought we could do a promotion where you got to get it correct for me here. The, the concept was if we scored in OT. I think as if Oleg Tevrodovsky scored the OT winner. scored the OT winner, everybody would get free yes. tickets for another game. Yes, that was your plan. <laughs> right. Because we, had, I thought that was a really cool plan. I thought it was a great idea. Cool idea. That was a great idea. But it was blocked. Why was it blocked? Okay, so Scott Hausen was the GM of yes, the- Yes, who's uh, now the president of the American Hockey League. Yeah, now runs the American Hockey League, and he was the president, and he was a big believer in what is what I also refer to as- the Lou Lamorello rule, which is no free tickets. And the reason that Lou Lamorello and Scott Hausen believed in no free tickets, Jeff, and I do understand this, is you never want a customer turning to, especially if it's a season ticket holder or a big-time paying customer, Mm -hmm. to turn to the person next to them and find out that that person got in for free. Right. And so now I will make the argument why Scott Housen and Lou Lamorello and Glenn say they were wrong on that one. <laughs> the odds, because now you, you brought it back home there, because the odds of Oleg Tevrodovsky scoring in overtime were so thin that he's going to score the winner in overtime. But what it did is it would get extra ticket sales for the game that you were at. So the risk was so low, the reward was so high, and it was... Uh, I think it would have been so. Yeah, you you brought me right right back there. They uh, <laughs> we should have done it. Well, so the the thing I was thinking is that it just shows your creative thinker, and I can only imagine as this was going on over the past few weeks and months that you were thinking of everything you could to save this team because you guys spilled a lot of blood making trying to make it work. As you know, what the typical thing when a team folds is they fold because they're financially you know you don't fold because you don't make the playoffs or you know you came you fold because financially you can't make it I mean I think what's really hard about this is we had a tremendous amount of momentum we had good momentum both for the season we were playing and the season that was coming up and so it in spite of you know suggestions that 
Brampton's not a good market or you don't have enough fans. I don't buy, you know, having been there seven years, I don't buy any of those arguments. I think that, you know, we're in the biggest hockey market in the world. You, again, not everybody's going to Leaf games. There's, there's lots of propensity for a lot of people to go to games and, and it was not. So what was really hard is that, is COVID going to do us in here? And, you know, for a lot of, a long time, we thought we'll get through it. But again, yeah, we, we felt like we, uh, we waited as long as we could, but again, there was no. We, it was just, it was just too big of a mountain. Kerry, were you with the um, with the Beast when they were in the CHL? Yeah, I was. I was there the first. I mean, Greg Rose and we started the Beast from day one. So it was the one year in the Central Hockey League in 2013, and uh, then we amalgamated with the or joined the ECHL. The reason I ask is because there was there were seven teams that joined the ECHL in in 2014. I can remember on this podcast when we spoke to Dave Andrews, then of course, uh, president and CEO of the American Hockey League, he talked about one of his greatest challenges was, and I wanna say this would have been in ah, 2000 or 2001, when the American Hockey League absorbed International Hockey League teams. And he talked about how much of a challenge that was. What was it like for the ECHL, maybe from your point of view, from Brampton going from the CHL to the ECHL, what were the challenges there? Well, first of all, Jeff, I tell you, I may have been the only person in both of those rooms. I was the alternate governor for the Hamilton Bulldogs oh, Hamilton. on the day. Oh, yeah, wow. we voted. We voted for the IHL AHL. So I was in there in the room when that happened. And then, you know, fast forward, I was in the room on the ECHL. Uh, CHL, I think in both cases, they were, they were really good moves. I mean, the IHL, the IHL tried at one point to compete with the NHL and that was, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And Dave Andrews did a tremendous job of being developmental AAA hockey. And I think the ECHL similarly is the AA hockey league. But for us, it was good. I mean, we, we joined the CHL and our closest rival in the Central Hockey League was a 12 and a half hour bus trip to Quad City. So, you know, to join the ECHL for us was great. I credit all of those people in the room because a lot of times uh, two leagues look at each other as competitors and they don't get there. What do you think about the future of minor league hockey in North America? How much damage is this going to do? Are there going to be more teams that you're concerned about? You know, where do you think we're going here, Kerry? Well, look, I hope we're the only domino. You know, I really hope we're the only domino. I actually credit, you know, and I think through my Cosmo Sports, we work in a lot of other, if you know, lacrosse and rugby and CFL. And, you know, I give a tremendous, and you see what the OHL is, is battling through. I give a tremendous a credit for the, the amount of teams that, that haven't had to go in this direction. And I, and I do hope like a hundred years ago in, you know, 1918, you had a basically similar, you had a two year period of a pandemic and then you got through it. I think if you get through it, most teams will get through it and you'll have a strong American hockey league and you'll have a strong ECHL, which is the, you know, triple a double a model of baseball, which is really what they've been trying to pull off, but they've got to get through it. I, I know what I do know is that, there are a lot of teams, hockey teams and other sports teams that everybody that doesn't rely on television or doesn't have television revenue is in really, really dire straits. And I think there's a lot of prayers that um, in Canada, you know, I think everybody's waiting for somebody to get the okay to have 20% 
fans in your building or 30% fans in your building. So I think if they can get through it, to answer your question, I think both those leagues in particular are, are in pretty good shape, but you got to get to the other side of this. It's an interesting question because uh, I, I think one of the things that watching hockey go through this pandemic and watching the American Hockey League, watching the ECHL, you, know, you mentioned the OHL, throw the Q and, and, and the Western League in there as well, watching all these leagues go through this for the first time in, in a long time, maybe in, you know, if for, for anyone of, of this generation, we've had to think about what the impact of not having a minor, a vibrant um, minor league hockey system would mean for the NHL. And that goes right back, uh, right all the way down to junior hockey in this country. I think for the first time we're, we're thinking to ourselves, hold on a second here. We've always taken places uh, like the, the American hockey league and the ECHL for granted. I think Carrie, this is the first time we've really looked at it and said, well, this could be a disaster for the NHL, when you look at all the number of players, not just in the American League, but it's more and more of a phenomenon now to see players go from the ECHL to the American League into the NHL. We've never had to contemplate that. You remember the first ever hockey game you went to. I bet you people will remember the first game they went to after COVID. Hmm. They'll, you'll remember that in 30 years. You can see a little bit of it coming back in, obviously, in, in U.S. markets and things, but I think especially for kids, you know, I feel like that they've been uh, tremendously impacted. And yeah, you're correct. The, the challenge for the OHL and what you don't know is, is COVID going to actually have an impact on the quality of players? 100%, all the way down. All the way down. So, right. Are you going to, you know, when you look back, are you going to say, well, you know, this was a bad year or we had a, because of what happened, in that COVID cycle. And, you know, you can do tournaments and you can, but it's not the same, you know, guys are in rhythms the way they play hockey since they're five years old, six years old. And their rhythm has been totally thrown off. You know, you go to Vancouver for three days and you have jet lag, like you miss having an entire rhythm of when you play hockey and how, when the mm. practices are. And I, I think it's going to have some long-term effects on, uh, on the game. What's your next step? I'm personally fortunate in that Cosmo Sports and Energy. I mean, we're in, we do a lot of other business and we're in rugby and lacrosse and soccer and basketball. I mean, there aren't, you know, we've kind of been in that. I hate the word minor. I don't like minor league. I think it's, it's really major league, but in, in other space. So, so I'm fortunate to be in a, there's a lot of sports and events that need to find a way back. And I think our company is going to be part of that, but what I want people to know is Brampton is a good hockey market and had a successful team for seven years. And I think that arena shouldn't sit empty. Like right now, as of today, with us leaving, it's the largest empty arena in Canada, I believe. In a sense, what I mean is there's no city of the size of Brampton that doesn't have a hockey team. So mm -hmm. that shouldn't last long and somebody should find a way to, to fill that if we're part of that or not. But, you know, I do think when you get through COVID and you have a period, you take a look at Brampton again and say, you know, is it OHL? Is it AHL? Is it ECHL? But there should be a team in that market. Well, that's what I wonder now. I wonder, do you think that same ownership group gets back together maybe in two years and says, we'd like to try this again? It's not out of the question. You need dust to settle here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they, someone may jump in there in the interim. But I, again, you had an ownership group that left really for COVID and COVID only was the reason that this team closed. Well, let me close on this then, Kerry. For me, the answer is watching David Ling because <laughs> I was a big David Ling fan yeah, and still yeah. am to this day. 
but when you think back, the history of the Brampton Beast, what are a couple of the the more profound memories that you'll have? And maybe David Ling's one of them. I don't know. But what are yours? David Ling is one. Since you mentioned him, he is one. He's a guy in his four. If it wasn't for Yar- Yarmory Agger, David would be the <laughs> oldest guy playing hockey. He still hasn't retired, by the way. He's he's, he's why retire? Keep no, playing. he doesn't see any reason to retire. I think he's the guy that'll be playing when he's sixty. But um, so David played with us in his early forties, and he was a former NHL guy. But people don't realize who ECHL players are. You know, they think it's a guys go to the OHL. For instance, they go to play in university, Canada or the States. Then they try and, where do you land? You try and get an ECHL job. If you're not lucky enough to be, or, or you know, unbelievable, as you always say, it's winning the lottery to go to the NHL. You have to be at that elite level. And mm-hmm. the American Hockey League is basically NHL drafted players. So the ECHL is kind of the top spot for guys that didn't get there. And it, to me, it's the guys you got to know that that are 27 years old, that are tremendous hockey players and have done this their whole life. They do it because they love it, because it's not uh, the chance of many of these guys, you know, besides the goaltenders. And we have a couple of our goaltenders, um, Hogberg and Drieger in the NHL that played for Brampton. But besides goaltending, the guys aren't going to play in the NHL at this point. But maybe the Remembrance Day, maybe one thing. And... We did something special every year with a company called Kotak Law, and we did a Remembrance Day game. And we had mm-hmm. 2,000 tickets purchased by companies for veterans. And, you know, it was that, or we had we sold the building out. We did school days where 4,200 kids would come on an afternoon game at 11 a.m., and it was deafening in the building. And um, that's, you know, kids and a lot of kids who had never been to a hockey game in their life. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that four times a year. And so hard to narrow it down to one, but I, I'm just touched that, you know, in three days I've received 400 emails. Did you say, where were you guys all like three days ago? That's what you always say. <laughs> you know, I'd like to, it's funny, Elliot. I'd like to say, uh, you know, I felt like after that, we get, you know, you're covered everywhere, right? The next day, you like to say, just joking. Now you guys all know us, <laughs> right? Like, like well, that would have been, that's that, that's the dream. Well, that's my hockey dream. It could have been, we could have done it this week, right? Say, no, thanks. You know, we got that huge amount of coverage. Just joking. We're playing next season. But now you guys are all aware of the Brampton Beast. Um, but yeah, we got, you know, hundreds of, of emails and people that are sad and, and and really some touching stories about, you know, single parents and people that are less fortunate that came to games and uh, schools and stuff like that. So it just shows what these community hockey teams do. And again, I hope it can come back to Brampton in a couple of years in some capacity. Amen. Hope you're right. Hope so. uh, Carrie, this has been a delight. Thanks so much for stopping by today. We, we really appreciate it. Best of luck with uh, with whatever's next. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. I want to thank Carrie Kaplan for stopping by the podcast this week. Gang Signs. That's who's taking us out. Three-piece indie electro band from Vancouver, British Columbia. This is from their 2012 self-titled album, Gang Signs, with Counting on You on 31 Thoughts, the podcast.